Programming Notes episodes, the general concept is that you can get an extended summary of episodes if you decide that you'd rather have that than listen to the episodes themselves, as well as some notes about what's going on in the community or how you can be helpful and useful in the community. Programming notes for the week of July 10th, 2022. I'm starting to see some meetup groups emerge in locations all over the place. Senthil Kumar launched one in Dallas, Texas. The ABN AMRO folks are working with me to launch one in the Netherlands. Um, I'm talking to potentially a couple of people in the UK that'll help launch one soon. Winfred Etzel has been going really strong for a while in Norway. We need more community country captains so people can lead things in their locations. You know, we need people to be able to meet each other and exchange information because we're just not seeing as many people just reach out to each other very often in this community. So if you want to lead, you know, a data mesh community in your country or, you know, if you're in a larger country in kind of your general location, please do get in touch. I'm also still really looking for for some help here to around people developing a standard data mesh journey question set. The point of this is organizations are hesitant to share about their data mesh journey publicly, you know, in some written form partly because they have no idea what to actually talk about. So I saw this when I worked with the Apache Cassandra community, you know, many moons ago, we created a standard set of five, six, seven questions. And we asked people to just write up a a quick summary based on this. And it took about five minutes to read. So it was like 30 minutes to write, you know, go through a little bit of editing But it gave people a sense of, oh, this is what people care about. And an important thing here is if I'm the one who develops this, it's going to be the questions I care about, not necessarily the questions you care about, right? So I need people to stop being passive if you want good information to flow to you. If you're just waiting for the reports about how do I do data mesh, it's going to take a lot more effort, and you're going to get a lot of kind of poisoned messaging from vendors. There are a lot of vendors out there that are vendor washing data mesh as much as they can. So reach out in one of the community channels in the Slack or to me or whatever to move forward on helping to create that standard template. But we need somebody to just put in a little bit of care to actually start doing that. And I don't care if you're at a consulting company or something like that and you put that out and it's on your page. It will drive lots and lots and lots of traffic to your page, but put in a little bit of effort to actually move this forward. So on to the quick summations of this week's episodes before the extended summaries. So on Monday, episode 99, Getting Philosophical About Knowledge and Sharing Experiences Via Data, which is with Andrew Padilla. Andrew, who's the editor of the Data Mesh 
learning newsletter. He has been for quite a, a while. We talked a lot about kind of the philosophical thoughts about data and how we really need to move forward and, and rethink the way we approach data to move beyond sharing the ones and zeros, really focus on sharing information and knowledge, you know, to more fully express what is happening in the real world. What are the experiences organizations are having so we can better react to real world interactions and, you know, kind of keep an eye out for what is changing and what is actually happening. And that we don't really, we've kind of been stuck doing our work, especially around data and, and information based on what the machines can do instead of bending the machines to our will, which I think we've got enough uh, uh, powerful machines to really get them to behave in ways that are closer to the way that humans think. So we don't have to really go outside of the way in general we all work to interface with the machines. It's a very interesting conversation. I think you'll, uh, if you like that philosophical kind of aspect, it will really uh, pique your fancy. On Tuesday, it is episode number 100. Yay. And so I'm going to do a look back at what I've learned, what we've learned in general so far in Amesh Musings. You know, this episode could be two hours trying to recap all I've learned. It won't be. I'm going to try to keep it brief. The episode will be a reflection of some of the emerging trends and patterns I am seeing from conducting 80 plus interviews for the podcast and having hundreds of additional calls and other types of information exchanges across email, Slack, LinkedIn, all sorts of stuff about how people are approaching their data mesh implementations and some related topics, right? Um, and I think it's going to help to sum up some of the interesting things that we've learned and some of the interesting things that I'm going to try and dig into in the next 100 episodes. Then on Friday, it's episode 101, which is H&M's data mesh journey so far, including finding reusability in interesting places with Eric Haru. So H&M was already starting to decentralize their data ownership when data mesh really came onto the scene. When talking to Eric, it sounded like they were uh, they had come across Jamak's first post or first article pretty quickly after it was released, and they said, "Hey, this is something we should really look at." And they actually even have a functioning cloud data lake right now. So this isn't somebody who's struggling mightily with their information, but they understand that kind of what's got them here won't get them there. They they are understanding that they can't just slowly evolve what they've got with their cloud data lake if they really want to accelerate what they're doing. And they've had good success in some limited capacity around their early AI investments. So it's, it's just a really interesting way of a company that's approaching data mesh from a let's not hurry, let's not really push forward way too quickly. Let's figure out where we want to go and put in the intentionality to kind of head there. And so I think it's it's an interesting approach and, and I enjoyed the conversation a lot. So with all that said, on to the extended summaries for the interview episodes. 
extended summary for episode 99, Getting Philosophical About Knowledge and Sharing Experiences Via Data, an interview with Andrew Padilla. So in this episode, I interviewed Andrew, who runs a data and software consulting company, DataSecchia, and serves as editor of the Data Mesh Learning Community Newsletter. This is one is a bit more philosophical about sharing information slash knowledge, so it's one to sit and think over. I'm going to quote some things directly from Andrew as well, but I think this one will leave you probably with more questions than answers, but it's it's interesting to look at the, the world this way. Andrew started the conversation with his hope and vision for mesh data products, or the data quantum. Historically, data, metadata, and code are not often grouped together, and even less frequently are they in harmony. They belong together as that harmony creates a higher level abstraction to share knowledge, not just the ones and zeros of data. What's the actual information embedded in there? To get data mesh right, Andrew believes you have to really figure out how to build mesh data products with that harmonization in mind. And you probably won't get it right at at the start of your journey, and that's okay. We're all still figuring it all out. We possibly, or even probably, need to move away from software development and even data product development to knowledge development in Andrew's view. Knowledge development means centering the development process on sharing knowledge. So much of what data we share lacks the actual context of what happened in the real world, the experiences of the organization. He says organizational experiences quite quite a bit in this episode, but we still don't have a great way of sharing those organizational experiences. Event storming in domain-driven design tries to address this, but it often falls short. How can we move forward? How can we progress towards modeling organizational experiences? For Andrew, as many other guests have said, if we can figure out how to do data mesh well and create some good standards, data mesh is very well suited for cross-organizational knowledge sharing and collaboration. Not data selling, but collaboration. This is similar to what uh, Yarko Moylanen mentioned in his episode's discussion about the data economy of his kind of second tier. I think if we focus overly much on that, that selling of data, it locks us into some uh, bad approaches. And Andrew really kind of as well echoed those sentiments. It's it's also important to recognize that it's still early and data mesh will not be the silver, silver bullet to figuring out how to do that cross-organizational collaboration well, and crucially, safely and compliantly. We are just starting to understand, to develop a point of view on what Andrew called the quote-unquote knowledge of experience. Per Andrew, quote, knowledge by definition is just the acquisition and use of experience and or education. So we must learn to treat organizations like living entities. Organizations have new experiences and are changed by them. And the types of experiences are also changing as the real world changes. If you look back in the 80s and 90s, much of communication between entities was done via fax. Faxes aren't nearly as common for most organizations nowadays. But the evolution of experiences also seems to be accelerating. And we are still struggling to capture those experiences in data. So 
not only can we not really capture experiences well, how do we evolve them well? For Andrew, software and data must reflect or quote unquote, be the embodiment of those organizational experiences. Do we even know what it really means for an organization to have an experience, much less model it? And those experiences don't take place in isolation to a specific domain. So once we figure out the experience modeling for the domain, we then get to try to figure out how to scale that for experiences across domains. <laughs> yes, we have some work ahead of us. Knowledge graphs probably hold the key to the cross-domain information sharing per Andrew. He called them, quote unquote, the glue. They are as good as we have technologically currently for developing and leveraging the knowledge tie-ins across domains. They allow people to bring more of a quote-unquote history of experiences to the conversation. In Andrew's view, we've historically had to deal with the limitations of what technology could do when thinking about knowledge sharing. Our ways of working have bent to those limitations of what the technology could do. But we should start to try to bend the machines more to the way humans store, process, and share knowledge. Almost a higher level law, higher order law, similar to Conway's law about how communication patterns, that we must push the machines to communicate and work in the way humans actually think. I asked about Dave McCombs' data centricity concept. Andrew thinks that data centricity might swing us too far towards data only instead of maybe knowledge first or knowledge as an equal footing to the ones and zeros in software. It might shake things up to move towards data centricity, but does it get us closer to knowledge as a first class citizen? Per a follow-up I had with Andrew, he sees the data, metadata, and logic as components that must work together in their specified functions in harmony and balance much like your vital organs. So just swinging to data doesn't necessarily swing us towards knowledge. Andrew brought up the concept of the 2D person in physics. What might be just a simple line in, in three dimensions, something you can easily move around or over or avoid, it is a full stop blocker to the 2D person. 2D is, is the analogy is choosing between data or, you know, is, is this focused on data or is this focused on code? We are living in a 3D world, even 4D when you think about the passage of time. So we need to move past our current ways of working and think on a higher plane how, about how to approach our work and how to approach what we share and, and the, the information around it. Data products in data mesh are simply a means to an end for Andrew. They are the building blocks to build out your knowledge repository and sharing, but it's crucial to understand that they are for a purpose in the greater organizational sense. They aren't the end accomplishment. Andrew finished up by sharing his ideas around data monetization. If you are specifically thinking of data, even for internal sharing as a monetary asset, does that put experimentation on the back Burner, as I talked about a little bit earlier. Do you only go for the sure bets or only focus on things that you know have specific use instead of simply potentially valuable? Andrew thinks that there is significant value to R&D incubation in general 
and especially when thinking about data. We aren't in a world yet where producing those speculative or interesting with no specific utility type data products is really cheap. So maybe those do come later, but it's important to not become overly focused on the immediate utility of each data product itself instead of how it fits into the greater picture of your organization's knowledge. Extended summary for episode 101, H&M's data mesh journey so far, including finding reusability in interesting places. Interview with Eric Harreau. In this episode, I interviewed Eric, the lead data engineer of the data platform at H&M. To be clear, Eric was only representing his own views and perspectives. About three years ago, when Jamac's first data mesh article was published, you know, May 20th, 2019, H&M was reorganizing to be a product-centric organization. Data Mesh dovetailed nicely with that strategy. They were moving away from that kind of IT-as-a-service-oriented organization. Eric and team knew that with a move to a product-centric approach, teams would need to be and would become data-savvy and quote-unquote data-intense. With their existing setup and knowledge, many teams would not be able to meet the new requirements and you know, really get to that data savvy and data intense level. Because while H&M's early AI investments were paying off very nicely, many teams just weren't ready to do the, that complicated of data work. To scale out their org-wide data capabilities, they knew they would need something like data mesh as the teams doing AI were the very mature teams. Maturing about 200 teams to that level would be essentially impossible, you know, in a short period of time or in a reasonable period of time, especially when you think about getting to self-service data producing and consuming as necessary to scaling ways of working. The management team at H&M were bought into the product-centric reorganization, so overall, it was not too difficult to drive buy-in for implementing data mesh at the same time, per Eric. There was buy-in and interest in participating from all types of teams, from the pure data producer to pure consumer and everywhere in between. There were a number of teams with uh, capabilities and resources to participate in the early uh, data mesh journey. As part of the platform slash core enablement team for data mesh, Eric saw how helpful it was to work with multiple types of teams serving different needs. Because they worked on multiple pilots across a range of teams with differing capabilities and needs, the platform team were better able to identify reusable parts of the product development, uh, deployment, and management process to add to what the platform team offered. Eric and team had a leg up on many other organizations considering data mesh, a data platform that was working well and serving current customer demands. Eric called the the current data consumers happy enough with their existing cloud data lake as they could mostly do what they needed to do. 
But the data team also knew that their existing cloud data lake would not scale to what they needed in the mid to long term, as it would not likely be able to handle about 200 teams, again, all producing data products. A key benefit of this existing well-functioning solution was there wasn't a rush to get a replacement in place. Again, this is a luxury many organizations don't have. So H&M's approach to building out their enablement slash data platform was almost a greenfield approach, you know, according to Eric. He said it is easy to fall into similar patterns of what you've done in the past, especially since their existing solution, their cloud data lake, was already working relatively well. But they knew they had to stay away from the gravity of what they'd done before and look to new ways of working. But again, they had the time to do it right and think about the initial stages as a bridging solution, not a rip and replace, not trying to shift people over as quickly as possible. And thus far, it's really working well for them. To date, the main focus of H&M's data enablement platform team has been building the self-service capabilities for the data producers. There's a large pool of highly data literate consumers already, especially the teams mentioned above that are advanced in applying AI. So these initial stages are about testing so they can discover the ways to make it easy on data producers to create and manage data products. Most of the initial data products are source aligned, you know, those generic data products, not tailored to any specific use case. It's the domain sharing the information about kind of what's going on in their business rather than having a specific you know, kind of consumer-driven use case, even if some of those are source-aligned consumer-driven use cases. The midterm data slash enablement platform strategy focuses on iteration and learning patterns. Eric and team know they won't get it all right up front, so making sure people understand there will be iteration and evolution is key to keeping people bought into the long-term big-picture vision. That's where they plan to really focus on making the platform as easy as possible for consumers as well. Eric shared the big reason for focusing on building the enabling capabilities into the platform rather than the data processing or other capabilities. First, they already have a good platform that can do the data provisioning, right? But also by not taking on any of the work themselves and finding ways to reduce friction, they can stay away from becoming a bottleneck and make it easier for teams to participate in the data mesh journey. It is easy to get dragged into specific work when you're that kind of central team building a platform and and building kind of outdated capabilities rather than specifically data products. Per Eric, as many guests have said, data mesh is very much an organizational focused effort. The technology and architectural side aren't easy But to have a successful implementation, more effort will need to be spent on the organizational aspects. H&M was inspired by what Spotify has done with their organizational approach, leading H&M to their return to the previously mentioned product-centric thinking slash approach. One interesting point is that Eric believes you need to implement at least a decent amount of your organizational change at the start of your journey, or teams will struggle to deliver mesh data products. This is somewhat of a controversial view. There's not that many that are doing the organizational change 
before they really embark on the journey. So it's something to think about and really consider. So why did H&M not have much pushback? Why were so many teams, including data producers, bought into participating in the data mesh implementation? According to Eric, H&M has a good track record of driving strong returns on their early investments in AI, especially driving business optimizations. But overall, people understood that the current AI setup would not scale to a wider audience. So they've seen these strong returns from doing data well and trust the data leadership to deliver further, right? They've seen that investing in data and really focusing on doing data well can have great returns, but they also knew that what they were doing wasn't going to scale to this 200-team type of of, uh, organization-wide setup. Eric made the interesting point that in the data warehouse world, most data consumers were plenty data literate relative to needs, but that was because they were fed the reports directly with no real push to be inquisitive and no ability to go in and really look at the data. Everything was controlled, so there was that good data quality filter. Once you open up to the concept of self-serve consumption, that can cause issues. The big issues Eric has seen with allowing self-serve access without proper training slash, you know, data literacy efforts are mostly around data misuse, not unethical or inappropriate use, but simply misunderstanding what the data means and which data to use to answer important questions. But he hopes that their data mesh implementation will guide people to the right information, especially by providing the right contacts for each data product to get more information. Again, this is something that people are talking about with the experience plane of how can they really automate as much as possible or how can they make it so that the platform and that experience can drive people to the best information or to get to a place where they know they need to ask um, somebody and get more information. Per Eric, many, many people in data Across the, organi- across the industry are putting a lot of hope in where data catalogs are headed. But the data catalogs should not be the only way people learn about what data is available or what said available data actually means. Conversations about data are valuable and they can be fun. A good example Eric gave was if people are asking a lot of unexpected or possible strange questions about your data product, it might be a signal that you should re-engineer. Eric and I agreed that part of where Data Mesh approaches things so differently is the emphasis on loose coupling between data products. Coupling in data has made it extremely difficult to make changes historically, so we need to prevent that but still make data interoperable. Otherwise, it's just high-quality data silos. But not every data product needs to interoperate with every other data product. And there also needs to be different types of data serving based on consumer needs. So data products will need those multiple output ports. In wrapping up, Eric shared the specific types of patterns and practices the data slash enablement platform team is working on. Schemas and generally schema handling, sensible defaults, input ports, etc. The import port example was really interesting and enlightening. I hadn't heard that example before. And what Eric was saying is that 
the way that that ingestion works from, you know, upstream technologies is the same for many, many of the data product needs. So start to really standardize your input ports. So that way it's very easy for someone to kind of create that that ingest mechanism. So I thought that was something that I hadn't heard and, and kind of seems obvious once it's said, but I just hadn't heard anybody talking about it. So I think it's important to highlight. 